Hello, I'm Dylan Haskins. And I'm Lisa Hannigan, and welcome to the second episode of Soundings. On this show, we're talking about brothers, mothers, and bank-robbing surfers, brah. Yes. <laughs> the Stake for Strangers is a new film about the national made by the lead singer's brother. The Testament of Mary is Colm Tabin's novel about the last days of Jesus of Nazareth from his mother's perspective. We also went to see Forgotten Spaces, an architectural exhibition happening in a room underneath Somerset House in London called The Dead House. And bank-robbing surfers can only be the 1991 classic Point Break, which is part of my course of education that my co-host has prescribed for me. So the difficult second show, we're hoping for this to be up there with the other great sequels in life. Nirvana's Nevermind, Homer's The Odyssey, The New Testament and Back to the Future (laughs) 2. I like how you've juxtaposed the New Testament and Back to the Future too. That's probably the first time that's ever happened in the history of the world. I don't see it. It should have happened before now. <laughs> this is Soundings. Soundings. That's definitely terrible. What? No. Okay, let me explain my new jingle. So that is the melody that Mozart's wife used to sing to him every morning to get him up. Do it again. Soundings. And so he would have to jump up and go... Soundings to finish off the scale. Is that my job then? To jump up and go soundings? You are the Mozart in the scenario, yeah. (laughs) Speaking of jingles, I was standing on Charing Cross Bridge uh, last Friday night and it was coming up to midnight and Big Ben chimed, which is probably the best jingle of all. The dong, 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 dong. Dun, dun, dun. I'm tunelessly making it, obviously. Sounding, that. soundings, sounding, soundings. Soundings. <laughs> but then, at, at the stroke of midnight, after doing the chime, all of the lights in Westminster went black. It just went dark. Wow. Is that a thing? I don't know. I've never hmm. seen... Does anyone know? Is that, that a, is that a thing that happens? It was pretty cool, though. If you do know the answer, please tweet us um, on SoundingsPod. Um, also, I'm in charge of jingles, so can you just lay off? My incredible jingle. Well, when you put the when you put the erudite like there was there was thought to it. That was a. Uh, it sounded like it was just a scale, though. Yeah, it's just a scale up to the seventh note. I'm, I'm actually a professional. So. Mistaken for Strangers is Tom Berninger's documentary about going on tour as a roadie with his brother's band, his brother obviously being Matt Berninger, the lead singer of The National. And it's been showing at several festivals recently, including the London Film Festival, where we went to see it last night. Here's a bit of the trailer. So how famous do you think you are? That's... okay. I how fast can you play? What kind of drugs and how many drugs have you done? Do you carry wallets on a stage with you? Your ID while you're, when you're playing? Actually, I do, yeah. That's just weird to me. It doesn't leave a lot to the imagination, but we can always blur it out. Don't worry about that. I just want to have fun on tour. I mean, I'm with a rock band. You just need to be careful about not partying. You're you're not a band member. You're you're a crew member. I feel like I feel like the only reason why he thinks I'm on tour is because I'm your brother. If the only reason you are here is because you. There's a clue to what to expect from this film in the title Mistaken for Strangers. It's taken from the title of the song from their 2007 album Boxer. And I listened to it again this morning and the first verse of it goes, you have to do it running, but you do everything they ask you to because you don't mind seeing yourself in a picture as long as you look far away, as long as you look removed. Which I think in this documentary, which everyone talks about it as the national film, but actually when you go to see it, the band are kind of removed from what this documentary is actually really about. Yeah, they're slightly secondary to it in that I think if you were a national fan, you'd really enjoy it. But if you weren't a national fan, it wouldn't matter. You probably would be at the end of it, but it, it, it certainly wouldn't matter. It's more of a, 
a documentary about making a documentary and then also a documentary about a relationship between brothers as well. And then I suppose there, you, the idea of brothers is a is a big theme for in the national as a band, obviously being made of two sets of brothers, and Matt Berenger being the only one who doesn't have his brother in the band. So mm-hmm. when he goes on tour, it's it's you're dealing with three sets of brothers out on the road. It's kind of it's nice when you uh, when they, when they play with that. I, I, there's one of the things we heard in the in in the clip there, where Tom Berenger asks Aaron Desner, you know, how fast can you play and. <laughs> He goes on to ask him, "Can he play faster than his brother?" And yeah. and Desner is kind of like, kind of hesitates and goes, "Well, well, technically he can play faster, but it's totally that brother, <laughs> that brother rivalry coming back yeah. into it." Again. You sort of can't hide that, you know. That we, we all, no matter how far away from childhood you get, you, there's these well-worn shapes that you you throw when you're in when you're with your sibling. The questions that he asked, like, "How fast can you play?" and "How famous do you think you are?" and and things like that, they really sort of caught the band off guard and their spontaneous reactions to those questions were so much more revealing than if he'd said, so tell me about your musical influences or something and they just give you the rote answer that they always give when someone always asks them that question. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know that Tom Waits quote, the, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And it sort of, I thought that was what, so, so great. It didn't really matter what he was asking them, but that they would give him the benefit of the doubt to sort of react to his question, you know, give him the time. You felt so much about the band just from from those portions of the of the film he does pushes like he you know he's get, trying to get these shots which are the kind of portraits of, of people that you will have in the documentary you know where it, it, it's just before it cuts into you know them talking it shows their face just to just to music looking kind of wistfully away or wistfully into look the up. camera and he, and look he's away like, look back pick up those chairs walk over here again and, and the guy's just doing it without questioning it's because their guard is down in the way that it wouldn't be with a journalist or someone like that in, in the type of the way that they deal with him probably because they also know that if something terrible happens they will ultimately be able to stop it getting out there which they probably wouldn't with a normal journalist absolutely yeah there's some great moments in this, like when Matt is uh, giving out to Tom for for having cereal and milk spilled on the floor of the bathroom. He's like, oh, mom. Yeah. Or, or he said, there's a moment where he says, you know, uh, you can't just leave your swimming togs hanging up in the tour bus because everyone has to live in this bus. And then he screams at him, where were you swimming? Like, there, was, there was no swimming pools around. But it's totally the the stuff that it, it's it's almost the mundane everyday things which we kind of remove from our 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 notions of what a band and a band as serious as the national are actually like you know yeah but everyone is human at the end of the day it reminds me of the time once i saw sigur ross playing football they were in like backstage in a in a festival and they were just like sitting outside the dressing room just like kicking a football around i was thinking oh yeah there they are (laughs) it was the most incongruous thing ever have you seen anyone else doing any weird any weird things that you're just like, oh, there's X doing. <laughs> no, no, I'll think about it. I'll think about it for next week. Maybe, maybe people listening have, uh, have, have seen something. If you have seen anything where a band are out of their normal habitat doing <laughs> terribly normal things, uh, do let us know if you can. The, the, the Twitter is at Soundings Pod again. One of the aspects I found kind of interesting about it was that you see him going on this tour, which um, his brief career as a roadie is is just that is brief. He it, it doesn't doesn't end very well. He is probably the worst roadie ever. <laughs> he seems to have lasted six months, and I was I was kind of surprised that he that he lasted that long. 
it looks like it's really mundane the type of touring lifestyle there is that what it's like is that do you think it's, it's well, kind of reflective I mean, of what the I'm sure I have a very uh, different experience <laughs> from touring from from the national but I thought it really captured the kind of sense of groundhog day mundanity is that a word mundanity I mean Did this I is a show about innovation so it's a word now okay, if it's not yeah. already you're welcome dictionary um but you know, the shots of them all kind of falling asleep in airports and um, sort of sitting around. And sleeping in the, in the sleepers on the on the tour bus, you know, looking yeah, like the, peaceful kids asleep compared to, you know, juxtaposed with him on stage. Matt, Matt Berninger goes pretty crazy when he's on stage. Yeah, there's not that, there's not a huge amount of um, of their music in it. There's a few amazing looking gigs, you know, that you just see snapshots of and... If you hadn't been to see the National, you would really, really want to, I think, after watching it. There is literally only one full song in the whole film, which is at the very end. National fans do tend to be extremely reverent about the National. Like yeah. it's, it's a point of friction in a relationship if, if one of your mates isn't into the National <laughs> and you can't understand. I'm speaking personally now. Oh, really? Has, have things gone awry? Well, absolutely. When people who have the same music taste as you and then yeah. you're like, oh, I'm going to see the National film and they're like, oh, I've never really got the National. You, have you dumped a lady over not being into Not the a national? lady. It wasn't, re- I don't mean relationship, relationship. <laughs> I mean, come on. Okay. The initial stage I mean, I of would, relationship. Though. I yeah, would. Fair enough. Fair I mean. <laughs> um, but just friends, like just things, just, you know. I, I kind of think, think like if you, you know, a national fan can go to millions of places to watch footage of them playing and listen to all the records. And I think that this film was a different thing and kind of it sort of approached them obliquely in a really interesting way. And you definitely saw stuff you would not see in a normal a normal music director. I mean, there was full frontal. There was there was full on bits. We won't say who's because that's that's a spoiler. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> At the fore, though, it is is more about Tom, the documentary maker himself. But by the end of it, you actually he still remains a likable character. He's, He's so he doesn't charming. seem like it's not a vanity thing in any way. He really is so endearing, and he and he gets away with it so perfectly. I think what what helps is the dynamic between the two brothers. Tom is nine years younger than Matt and they look so similar. They have exactly the same features, exactly the same speaking voice. Uh, Matt is this tall, serious, amazing rock star guy and Tom is the kind of younger, funnier version and he's really struggling with the fact that his that his big brother is this sort of god to so many people and... and and he struggles with his with his confidence and he's so unsure about what he's doing with his life. And I don't know, I just found him really relatable. In the Q&A, somebody asked him why he didn't like the national music. And I thought he gave a really interesting answer that he felt that when he listened to it, it was too introspective and it sent him into himself. And that he kind of spends too much time in himself and that it's, it's not a good place for him. Yeah. He liked things that took him away from <laughs> yeah. there, which was a really... It's a very thoughtful answer, actually, to a Q&A question. Often these things are, yeah. you know, well, as 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 was one of the questions, you know, why did you choose that name? But yeah, but yeah. there you go. Anyway, <laughs> Mistaken for Strangers is still screening over the next few weeks at festivals all over Europe with dates in Leeds, I think, on the 10th and 14th of November and Cork on the 16th of November. And the National are also touring in these parts in November, but the Leeds and the London shows are sold out. But I think there might still be tickets for Belfast and Dublin shows. But anyway, you can check on the National's website, which is AmericanMary.com forward slash tour. Now for a section that I like to think of as us all collectively taking our inner teenagers 
out for a smoke behind the bike sheds. Welcome to the re-education of Dylan Haskins through the medium of films that he hasn't seen but really should have. So our first <sighs> film is 1991's Point Break. Break. How did you get on with well, You were shocked that I hadn't seen this before. I was bold. How, how do you even function without having seen Point I mean, Break? I don't know. I mean, I feel like having seen it during the week and in actual fact you've started a new tradition in my house which is where I kind of made everyone else watch it because it's the type of film that you have to have a few beers and other people to watch it I don't think you can watch it on your own no yeah. I mean otherwise you would have to be looking at people going is this real did he just say that <laughs> but you've started a new movie night a Sunday night movie night in the house which is a it's, it's a good thing so I think this whatever you kind of program for me to watch each week now is going to be the, well, hopefully, the Sunday night screening hopefully that will be the same you know to anyone listening hopefully we'll all we'll all have a collective of soundings movie night I mean when you mentioned Point Break on your on your Twitter and you asked for it I mean you got a pretty good response there's a lot a lot of you got in touch with Point Break quotes of which there are just so many yeah here's, here's a few of the best ones hey, you're a real blue flame special aren't you son young dumb and full of cum I know I guess we just must have ourselves an asshole shortage huh <laughs> sorry what <laughs> young dumb and full of cum did you miss that bit I, I, it's a classic I think it did go over my head <laughs> I mean, imagine your boss said that to you and you're like, first day working in the FBI. It's intense in the FBI. You're trying to tell me the FBI is going to pay me to learn to surf? Definitely. <laughs> hey! <laughs> My name's Johnny Utah! What else they got on it? I still haven't found anything I can really use. I gotta find an approach. Oh. Here we go. Both parents deceased. Airplane crash. San Diego, 84. He's such an asshole. He goes into the cafe and then tells her, yeah, my, my parents died as well. It's like, that's the lowest approach to take with someone. It is, it is. But he's, you know, he he doesn't realise he loves her at that point. He also, you know? does, he also doesn't hide his background whatsoever. He's like, yeah, I did law in like this university or whatever. Yeah. Um, which is really, really covert for an FBI agent who's going <laughs> undercover. So what was your favourite bit? Uh, oh God, favourite bit. Oh man! Hang Did you on. like when he when he shot his gun in the air and said, "Ah"? That's my favorite. I wish bit. people could have seen you doing. You did a pretty good Keanu Reeves there as he shoots his load. Oh, he shoots his gun in the air and goes, "Ah!" ah. Exactly. Or, um, I mean, one of my favourite ones was when they're doing a raid on a house and he, you know, they, they get the guy with the gun at the end. He goes, speak into the microphone, squid brain, which is the most <laughs> menacing thing you could say to anybody. But there was one line which I wasn't sure if I heard it right. Um, and we tried to replay it, but I didn't. Now you can probably, as someone who's watched this several times, can okay. confirm it for me or not. But Bodie, played by Patrick Swayze, <gasps> says to Johnny Utah played by Keanu Reeves of course I know it's hard for you Johnny I know you want me it's like ass in your mouth no acid in your mouth oh don't besmirch the Swayze with your filthy I thought mind. it was a weird thing to say and it was it was definitely getting towards the that was the most kind of tender erotic moment between Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze in it, Point Break it is a sort of a love story between the two of them absolutely but, yeah. he doesn't even arrest them in the end he's the worst FBI agent ever well, he's not coming back, so it's fine. So Brown Bread Mixtape on Twitter um, said that apparently the, f- the foot chase sequence is used as an example in film editing class at NYU Film School. 
So, mm. you know, everybody thinks it's great. It is a good foot chasing scene. It's kind of like, I mean, it's up there with the Bond <laughs> chase scenes that open. Seeing as you're setting me the homework, okay, I'm going to, in turn, I want to ask you a question about the, each movie that I watch. A piece of trivia to test just how well you actually know oh, these films. Oh no, if you jeopardise um, Keanu Reeves and me getting married because I don't know everything about Point Break, I'm, I'm going to be really annoyed at you. But anyway, go ahead. So Patrick Swayze, when he's as a bank robber, he goes into the bank. <sighs> Which American president's mask is he wearing? Ronald Reagan. Yes. Wow, you and you and Keanu Reeves' marriage is safe. Oh, you can be paid for it. That's really, that's very impressive. So are you ready for next week's homework? So next week's film, which if you all would like to watch it as well, that would be, that would be nice. Um, it was suggested on Twitter by Colm Tobin. Um, and in honour of our second show, I thought we should go for a sequel. Very good. Um, so it has one of the greatest theme tunes ever. It has ghosts, it has slime, it has... The Great Vigo. Um, and most importantly of all, it has Bill Murray. Do you know what it is? Excellent. I mean, can there you... can only be one thing with us. <laughs> but it's a sequel, so it's, it's it's number two. It's Ghostbusters 2, exactly. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching that again. I did have, when I was a kid, I did have a Ghostbusters car. It was actually my favourite toy. It was one of the toys I had. But I don't think I would have seen Ghostbusters. I think I would have just had it bought for me. So I might have seen the first one. I don't, I can't think what happens in Ghostbusters 2 though. Well, there's the Great Beagle, which we'll, we'll all find out about it. But it's, um, there's a painting um, which becomes haunted. We've got an arts dimension to it already, which great, just fits in with the show perfect. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So this came out now, this 90s? Do you know, I think it actually technically came out in 1989, late 89, but I don't think it came out in Ireland until the 90s. So <laughs> yeah. There was a, a delay in the things getting there. Yeah, it will squeak by. And I really just want to play the theme tune. So <laughs> we're fudging that one slightly. Well, from Ghostbusters to the Holy Ghost. <laughs> there were six books on the Man Booker Prize shortlist this year from England, Ireland, Canada, Zimbabwe and New Zealand where Eleanor Catton who took the £50,000 prize is from she's 28 and she's also the youngest winner of the prize in its 45 year history and her book The Luminaries at 832 pages is also the longest book to win the prize ever so she's set two records there in it but we're currently making our way through Bob Stanley's beast of a book yeah 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 the story of modern pop it's quite a long one so we thought we'd pick the shortest one to talk about this week which at the other end of the size chart is Column to Beans The Testament of Mary which is a sliver of a book at 104 pages and it's to Bean's third time on the shortlist but it wasn't to be Yeah In this book Mary of Nazareth the mother of Jesus is in her old age and living in exile She's under the oppressive protection of two unnamed apostles and in this book she bears witness to what happened 30 years before when she saw her son grow from child to man to professed son of God and to eventually be crucified. This is not a portrait of the biblical Virgin Mary, all humble piety and loving kindness. It's a story of a grieving mother whose pain and loss is distilled to a brittle and determined anger. And though it is 104 pages long, it doesn't feel in any way slight. The language is so spare and lean. The whole book is so taut, I thought, and, and dense. It was originally performed as a play, um, Testament, in the Dublin Theatre Festival in 2011. Um, I, I'd love to have seen this on the stage, actually. Yeah, I'd say it would have made an incredible play. It's a strange jump from a play to a book. I wonder how many things take that Yeah, it's usually, usually the other way around with, you know, the commitments or whatever, which has gone from being a film to now being a, a West End production. And starting out as a book. 
Mm. I loved this book. It's so poetic, the language, and it. it's just, um, it almost reads like one one long poem. I was underlining bits constantly in it, like, like I remember everything. Memory fills my body as much as blood and bones. When you take these things out of isolation, we're talking about it, it sounds kind of like overly dramatic, but in this narrative, when you're reading this book, it's those lines like that. It's so well crafted, but you wouldn't expect anything less from, from Colin Fabian, who's, you know, written many, many books, but... um, It's so tense. And of course, it's one of those stories which has that sort of sense of looming dread throughout, you know, like Titanic or JFK or something. We all know how the story, or at least the biblical version of it ends. So it's all leading to this, this awfulness, which sort of the whole book is sort of suffused with this dark dread, you know. Um, the idea of it being a, a testament, one of the, you know, we're used to the, the testaments that we're used to are the four Gospels in the New Testament. Oh man, this is from a mother's perspective and it's not what you would expect. It's certainly not the story told by the by those four four apostles in, in their version as well. And mm-hmm. y- y- the premise is that there's these two apostles with her and uh, one of them presumably being being the Apostle John, who's in the process of writing his gospel. And they're kind of trying to coax her to say things that they want her to say. And she's reluctant. She doesn't play up to the myth of it as we know it at all. Um, so obviously it's a totally hypothetical scenario that Colin Tabin has imagined here as well. But it really makes you think, I, I found about myth making in general, how, how myths can develop from real scenarios. And it, But it's not that he takes an entirely realist approach as well either. He doesn't say, you know, miracles didn't happen. Like There are lots of miracles that happen in the book. Like Lazarus is a big component in it as a character. He does, he is risen from the dead and, you know, water is turned into wine and there isn't a, a logical explanation given to how these things happen either. But Mary's quite sceptical about, about those. She's at this wedding with her son who sort of rejected her at this point, you know, and has... He's gone off with his with his followers and hasn't she's you know, she has this sense of loss that that he is no longer hers. There's a line in that where she says, like, when my son would insist on silence and begin to address them as though they were a crowd, his voice all false and his tone all stilted. And I could not bear to hear him. It was like something grinding and it set my teeth on edge. And I often found myself walking the dusty lanes with a basket as though I needed bread or and it keeps going on because there's very little full stops. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, she, well, she's talking about sitting at the wedding and, uh, you know, and these, these jugs being taken out and some of them having water and some of them having wine. And she says, and in all the shouting and confusion, no one knew what happened. So she's very sceptical about all these things. She keeps mentioning how nobody was actually there with the Lazarus incident. Um, but then she does see the aftermath and it's quite dark and scary. Whereas, you know, if you're aware of the of the stories in the Bible, you know, that's a really joyous occasion that Lazarus is raised from the dead and everyone's, you know, really happy about it. Um, but then in this book, it's so dark and frightening that, that he's, that he is this shell of a, of a person um, when he does, when he does come back. And I don't think he says another word. Ever. Yeah, it's kind of morbid. He's, he's kind of, it's like he's, He's been brought back to, to living, but is just there and just holding on, and, th- and there's, no, there's no real life to him yeah, or living. And it's it's really um, scary that bit, and she's trying to undermine the 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 reinvention, the, the the tension between her and her minders and her memories and what they want her to remember and in sort of insist she remember, is really is really interesting. I think she says it that the their earnest need for foolish anecdotes and sharp simple patterns in the story of what happened to us. But there's something so moving about it because 
for me anyway, and I haven't really thought about this now in in many years. These these stories, they're so familiar um, since I was quite young that they're sort of abstracted to the point of being a mirage, and all the humanity is 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 told out of them. And uh, I'm reading this book. It's quite moving to hear them retold in a really real and human voice. Um, and I I thought it was it was really. It was really thrilling and gripping. The one thing it doesn't touch on is, um, as she's an old woman telling this and kind of near death, it doesn't touch on the Immaculate Conception, or if if, if you believe Roman Catholic doctrine, or, um, or or from from other faiths. She doesn't, but she kind of alludes to her husband, and you can imagine that that is something that was invented because she starts saying that they told me what yeah. happened to me, and you imagine that that's what that's referring to. And she refers to Joseph as as Jesus' father several times. You know. I don't yeah, think I this book would really offend people in any way, no matter what you believe. What do you? I don't think so. But then I'm, you know, I'm not massive friends with God, so I don't know whether. <laughs> but I, I don't think you should. You know, I, yeah, I, I really yeah. don't think. I think it's more about thinking about her and her grief and her pain and her loss as a real person. I mean, that's what's moving about it. But I, I loved it. I was, I was really surprised at how, how good a story it was. You know, and it's a strange, um, and atmospheric book, and I. Yeah, I loved it. Well, the book is widely available. It's published by Penguin and it was shortlisted, as I said, for the, the Man Booker Prize. But it, it, it unfortunately didn't win, but still a great achievement to get shortlisted nonetheless. The final thing we, we went to this week was the Forgotten Spaces exhibition at Somerset House in London. The Dead House is a space underneath the Fountain Court at Somerset House with a, a few 17th century tombs complete with engraved skull and bones for, for good measures, as you do in the 17th century. Um, which, as, as a Forgotten Space... In its own right, it's the perfect venue for the exhibition, which is a showcase for the best entries to the the Reba Forgotten Spaces competition, which is in its third year. It's a design competition for architects to choose an overlooked or disused site and come up with an idea to use it or improve it. It was raining when I went there. Was it raining when you went there? No. Oh, it's been raining a lot recently. That's what I thought it might have been. But <laughs> there was dripping constantly in the exposed pipes overhead, which as you're walking through an exhibition, I really liked that away from the kind of pristine, you know, whiteness of galleries. <laughs> yeah, it was a really, it's a really spooky space. And the success of those open house days really shows how much we all love to have a little nosy around interesting buildings. I've been to Somerset House before, but just to see, be in that sort of weird empty moat bit was really interesting. The exhibition, the way it was mounted, which was quite creative as well, it was kind of on bits of scaffold poles, which were actually borrowed from, from builders. So it's it's kind of a nice, I mean, scaffolding is usually what's what's there in that interim stage between imagining something and then realising it as a, as a as a built thing, which is exactly. kind of what these projects are as ideas. But there was lots of great things. Maybe one of the ones I found the weirdest one was the necropolis. And it was apparently the railway that used to take bodies from Waterloo Station out of London to the suburbs when they stopped burying people, I think in the early 1850s, when they stopped burying people in central London. So this was a dead train. And it's the place, the mausoleum place where they put the bodies is this building that's being proposed to be turned into a kind of centre for um, commemoration where it's kind of a different type. It's not about a graveyard. It's about putting objects that mean something to people. And that's the type of you know, democratic museum that everyone can contribute to. Um, yeah, an archival library of artefacts um, to preserve memory. Yeah. I think was what... Was what um, I don't know how that would work in practice. Claire but Moody called it, who the, designed it. The building is kind of... What a weird oh, site, eh? It was so spooky. So spooky. The exhibitions were kind of split between outlandishly imaginative 
ones and then the center for forgotten beers <laughs> yeah and then pretty pretty practical ones but they were all really interesting i mean the the outlandish ones are a bit more fun but the whole idea of it was really important you know that i think nowadays the idea of like make do and mend has just sort of been condensed to this like trite dish towel slogan thing but it's actually so moving to go in there and see people figure out ways of preserving buildings and respecting their history and giving them a new a new life um, instead of just letting them crumble into their own mausoleums you know I thought it was really good and it could be anywhere I mean this exhibition is about London specifically but there's these empty sites parcels of land that just didn't fit with the roads and are emptied or something that's owned by the council and fell in they're in every city in every town in these places and it's kind of it's more the approach to how people respond to that site specifically rather than you know rather than it's not unique unique to London in any way I thought absolutely there was a few um, a few entries that were about abandoned um, decommissioned gas holders those big round round yeah. kind structures as you see. Of which there there is some in Dublin as well and uh, that was one of my favourites because that that was the most imaginative and kind of crazy but they were seven disused um, gas holders and they had it was called A Lost World by David Wakefield and Robert Nims and it was to turn it into a zoo and each one of these massive big circular spaces would be like a habitat for apes or then this one would be a tank to have sharks and things like that in it and then there'd be these elevated walkways that people would walk around and and look at them Um, but it was such an interesting and crazy way of thinking what to do with this space and they're grade two listed Victorian gas holders and then it's turned into a zoo which is a a Victorian concept in itself. And then part of it was that the waste from the animals um, would be turned into a biogas, which would in turn power the zoo. So I just thought that I thought that, that was such a such an interesting use of space, probably completely unfeasible, but um, and it, well, it wasn't the only idea to turn literal crap into good use as well. There was this street lamps one. What was that one called? Uh, that's called Hidden Light by Threefold Architects. I love that one too. Which, which so it was like it's basically taking it's which is a Victorian idea as well. It's one of these things that you know were was made a couple of hundred years ago, and you wonder why don't we still use that? Where they took the the gas that came from the sewers naturally and the waste in the sewers and used it to power gas lamps that lit the streets. Such a brilliant idea. I had no idea that that was, that was the case. And then these guys wanted to make a series of retractable metal flares um, that would use that gas and make these sort of flaming street lamps, which they called beacons to lost industry. And, and also that the kind of that you would see these things and know that there's things happening underneath the ground, which is the case in, you know, in any city with sewers and all of that, all yeah. of the tunnels and so all the things. So what happens now to our methane gas? That is the question. Where does it go? I don't know. I mean, I'm the wrong person to ask. <laughs> Maybe someone else knows. I mean, it just goes into the atmosphere, surely, doesn't it? But is that not really bad for the atmosphere? Well, yeah, but aren't, aren't cows the biggest polluters on the planet because yeah. they produce so much methane gas? Well, they do when they're factory farmed on massive, massive food lots. I don't know why they don't strap containers to the back of the cows and harvest the methane gas. They could just be walking street lamps. <laughs> just, you could just fit a street lamp contraption into a cow's backside. We shouldn't really be just... talking about this on the radio so that we can enter next year, Dylan. So. Yeah, actually, it's patented. Copyright. Yeah. Copyright that idea. <laughs> um, the winner of it was a project which uh, involved kind of uncovering one of London's lost rivers, the Fleet River, which runs alongside St Pancras Gardens um, in, in King's Cross. And this is the case. A lot of rivers in the, in, in the city were bricked over and 
you know, they're they're gone. Whereas this was talking about opening it back up again to make a bigger kind of focal point in St. Patrick's Gardens, which is a kind of a really nice kind of hidden space in and of itself as well. That was the one that, that won it. Yeah, it was really nice that they wanted to resurrect a portion of it and turn it into um and turn it into a beautiful garden. And just to have that echo then, this tributary that runs from Hampstead Heath down to the Thames, um, to show echoes of the history through to today. Um, I thought I thought it was really, really nice. Also, I enjoyed the pun of fleeting memories. That was pretty good. Mm. <laughs> My favourite one uh, was this one, which is the Aldwych Station Pool, um, where they there's, there's a disused, closed down tube station just beside Somerset House, actually. On the Strand, you can see the, the entrance to it where it says Strand Station. And then further around the corner, there's Aldwych Station. It was built in 1907 and then closed down in 1994. But it's all the Victorian interior is preserved and it's used for been used for lots of films actually um, Viva Vendetta The Prodigy's Firestarter video was shot in the tunnels there really yeah um, and it was also used to shelter some of the art from London galleries I'd imagine it was the court hall next door and, and that stuff where they probably sheltered that art but it took this space which is just kind of empty it's a list of buildings so you probably couldn't really do this idea anyway but it was a nice idea that they were turning it into a public bathing pool because there is a pool around the corner which is supposedly a Roman bath um, mm-hmm. and with a natural kind of spring or something like that 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 supplies it so it was taking that and imagine imagine you could jump off the tube platform into a pool and that's, <laughs> it's so nice and just i mean i could see where the idea came from in 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 that all those the beautiful victorian tiling in those old tube stations it does have echoes of of a bats and I just loved it. What a brilliant idea. It's a sh- I mean, I hope they could do it. There's a gallery online which shows some of the photographs of the interior of Alwich Station, which is really nice to kind of see this tube station that's kind of stopped in time because it has never been done up since it was originally was originally built. So we'll post that on our on our Twitter. But um, the, the Roman baths that are located nearby this idea, I went to try and track them down because they were around the corner. And it was this, it was one of these lanes that must have been one of the old medieval London lanes that you walk down and you think you're going to get robbed in. But it was very quaint. There, wasn't, there was no threat at all. But just around the corner, there was this little, these little steps um, going, going down into this quiet laneway. And there was a National Trust thing there where it said, here's the supposed Roman baths. You can look in the window. And the window was all fogged up. I couldn't see anything. But I really want to go and see that. I love when you stumble across little hidden things in the city that you would just walk by all the time. Yeah, well, I think that's what all of these entries into the exhibition were doing. They were, you know, there, there's so many hidden places and so much history everywhere um, that it's it's good to to flag it up. You know, it's good to it's good to elevate it a bit and and just allow the history of a place to echo through to today. And maybe some of them will get built. Maybe. I'm maybe voting for the zoo. The zoo and the meat. Yeah, well, maybe <laughs> we'll have to get working on that idea for next year. Forgotten Spaces 2013 is open now until the 10th of November in the Lightwells and Dead House of Somerset House in London. Their website is somersethouse.org.uk and we'll also post a link on our Twitter account at SoundingsPod where you can look at the gallery of the entries that we've been talking about. We have focused a bit on London on the first show and on this show and some of the exhibitions that we went to just by nature of the fact that it's 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 where we it's where we're living. But if there is something interesting happening where where you're living, do let us know. And you know if it's somewhere where we can reasonably get to, and um, we will we will try to check that out as well. And thank you so much to everybody for twittering us last week after our first episode. Please do let us know if you have read. Um, the Testament of Mary or seen Mistaken for Strangers or been to the Reba exhibition and also tell us what you think of Ghostbusters 2 I can't wait I can't wait to see that <laughs> that's at Soundings Pod also if you did check out the first one um, 
why not give us a rating? Let us know what you thought. Uh, there is a nice uh, <laughs> comment box if you can navigate your way around iTunes to figure that out. Um, that would be great if you could do that. But for now, uh, voya con Dios. Take it easy, war children. <laughs>